Throughout time and across cultures, mysterious creatures have been sighted by everyday humans. Bigfoot, Nessie, Mothman. These beings have yet to be substantiated by science or debunked. So a field of study, cryptozoology, was born. A longtime practitioner of the pseudosciences, Andy McGrath, who was drawn to it as a child. When I was a child, and I just thought, could there be? Could there be other things out there that we have yet to discover? Is the, is the age of exploration dead, or is there more to come? He's been at it in print, podcast, and TV for 30 years. And he's here to talk about the beasts of the world. I'm Steve Fisher, and this is Life Slices. Let's start with a relatively easy question. Probably not for others, but for you. Who is Andy McGrath? Okay, oh gosh, who is he? Well, Andy McGrath, basically... I didn't mean is, to stump um, you with that first question. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Whenever you talk, ask a British person to talk about themselves, the fear hits them because, of course, that's not humble and it's boastful in a way, even though it, it's not. You ask me the question, I will answer. Andy McGrath is uh, it's a researcher, cryptozoological and paranormal researcher, author, TV presenter now of the upcoming series Weird Britain, and a podcaster in, in parenthesis of the, the host of the Beastly Theories podcast. I have been researching cryptozoology for over 30 years now, most other things. And I just love the histories and mysteries of Nessie and Bigfoot and Mothman and anything else that's out there that may be a living animal that we yet to discover. But that's not the only thing. I also love folklore. I also love history. I love ghost stories, all these other things, which Weird Britain, the series, is now investigating. And he's just a, a happy guy plummeting headlong towards 50, who's found his calling in life. Are we going to see Weird Britain in the States? Yes. So it should be, it'll be on Sky and History in the UK in March. So depending on how they license it, it could or should be in the States the same year. Yeah. Terrific. I'm looking forward to that. Now, for those who don't know, what is cryptozoology? Cryptozoology is the study of a hidden animal. Okay, crypto meaning mystery or hidden, and zoology is 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 uh, animal life. It's something that's fascinated me since I was a little child, looking at Leonard Nimoy's In Search of documentary when he looked at Ogopogo and Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and other things, and Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World which was a great favorite. That intro with the skull comes up, have that awesome theme music. And I used to watch those as reruns and, and some, some first-time episodes with my father when I was a child. And I just thought, could there be? Could there be other things out there that we have yet to discover? Is, there, is the ex age of exploration dead or is there more to come? As I've since realized, there's, there's more to come and more to be discovered. Wikipedia says that cryptozoology is a pseudoscience. Yes, very much so. You obviously agree with that. I do, I do, I do. I think this, that's, that's good in one way and terrible in another. The, the way in which it is good is that there are a lot of confines, I think, around regular science, life sciences, that could restrict or have restricted some people in the past from looking into these subjects, you know, reputational risks. So that opens the door for other people to come and investigate them. On the bad side, that opens the door for other non-scientific people to come and investigate them. And you get this massive, what I would refer to as a multi-denominational belief system, cult, if you will, even, in which the practices are similar but vary based around similar principles. I think they could be right hairy hominid 
species all over the world. I wrote a book about it called Hairy Humanoids. And the reports going back for hundreds of years are very similar, all of these features. Now, they could be folkloric, they could be religious reasons for those. Heracles, for example, carries a club very similarly to the wood woes of the wild man of, of Europe. And he was a big, strong, hair-covered man. So was this hair-covered man, Heracles, based upon an upright hominid or we derived this new Bigfoot fad from that. Is, is the Bigfoot of North America, for example, a colonial transplant of Europe onto North America in the same way as the Duende of South America is the Spanish Portuguese colonial transplant of a little person legend into the Americas? And that intrigues me. What could be behind this? But there are, there are so many stories of Bigfoot-like creatures around the world in different cultures that that's what makes me believe there it's got to be some truth. Have we ever checked the manifest of the Plymouth settlers to see if there was a big hairy man with them? <laughs> we haven't. We haven't. I'm sure there were plenty of big hairy men with them. Then they probably survived the first winter. But I'm not sure if they were what we would call undiscovered hominids. And, and even that word, undiscovered hominid, for some people, that's something that comes in out of portals. For other people, they've been left here by aliens and they're a mix between humans and apes. And for other people still, it's just an unknown ape or a missing link between ape and man. And it goes on and on and on. And you'll find the perspective of the researcher that you read will always be heavily affected by their philosophical outlook on life and its origins. Well, I, I live on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, in the oh, States, and yes, Bigfoot yeah. is supposedly a neighbor. He has yet to come over and ask for a cup of sugar. <laughs> when I've been out there in the woods once or twice, and I've been suddenly aware that there's something there that I'm not, I can't see yet. Something's in the woods with me. And thought to myself, if you are in that situation right now to meet this creature, do you really want to? Just like meeting a bear, it's an individual character like you are, and it's got to make a decision what to do about you at that moment as you have about it. Maybe that particular Bigfoot, a particular day says, you know, I don't want this person to, I'm here. The best thing I can do is pull his arms off, throw his body in the bushes, and you get your moment of discovery for a few seconds and he gets away scot-free. So I've always questioned myself, do I really want that up-close encounter or I prefer to see it through a, a big lens from far away? Well, that's a good point. After I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind, living in New York City at the time, and I'd sit in my 11th floor window doing the hand signals and the music from hoping that they would come to get me. Now, I don't know just how badly I want to be anal probed. I, I wouldn't mind meeting them if they are friendly. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the probers, I mean, they don't seem to be as common these days as they were in the 80s and 90s, do they? I mean, it was all about probing in those those two decades. You remember that? You know, there's a great thing about actually the age, stage and era that you come from and how that defines the reports that you might make or that you might discover. I was once assailed, I'll call it, by some Bigfoot group and the head of it, he was about 65 and he said that they were visited by this Bigfoot called Patty, but she's got a different alien name. She comes and gives you all this information once or twice a month. And uh, then he started describing all of these things and all these different names. And they were very 1960s-like alien descriptions and names, Zeon and Zargon and all these types of things. I thought, it's almost your your era is, is betraying your, your, your ruse in a way. And it reminded me of that Men in Black 3 film, but it goes back in time. And all of the aliens he sees are like those 1950s and 60s aliens. I thought that's a great take on this whole phenomenon. If you looked at all of the reports, Saber Lock Ness and other things, going back to the years, their descriptions, whether that's to do with what we have in our mental library available at that time or not, are very 
era appropriate all the way along. It's a, it's a strange thing to behold. Interesting. And that's actually there's a question I had for a little bit later on, but I'll, I'll get to it now. To what degree are our sightings really figments of our imagination because we are, we've got ourselves gamed to look for that? I think that depends entirely on the person and their intention. If you're visiting Loch Ness, for instance, you will go in there for one reason. You're going to see Nessie. You think Nessie is a plesiosaur, obviously, because every game shop, uh, gift shop around there, every poster has got a plesiosaur on it, smiling with a little Scottish beanie tartan hat. And so that's what you're primed for. And all of the sightings in the last six years, even though they're not normally plesiosaur-like, that's what we're expecting to see. And there's a lot of strange things there. There are boat wakes that appear five minutes after the boat has disappeared because it's a large cruiser. It's come up the loch. And slowly in this narrow block, about a mile wide, but, you know, very deep, water's traveling out and coming back in, in a way. And it takes a while to, for that water to get to you. So you could arrive on Doris Beach, for example, five minutes after the big cruise has passed at 12 o'clock and think, there's Nessie. Look, there's the, the wake. There's the hump. And yet for somebody who lives in Doris, they know that's the boat and that's the wake. And that it's all about perception. I used to look at these old Bodleian Library book, the old medieval manuscripts and the drawings of certain animals. Some of the sea monsters in them have, they have the neck of a snake, they have the head of a fox, the fins of a fish, and the body of a seal. And you can tell that that person, whoever's drawn it, they've been, this animal's been described to them. And they're delving into their own mental library of images that they have available to, to portray the animal. You know, it's like some patchwork quilt of different zoological life. And I think that's, that's a big effect on this. If you've got skin in the game or you have a philosophical belief that says, I believe all Bigfoots are aliens or I believe all big, Bigfoots are bears. Maybe you'll see a Bigfoot and see a bear instead, or at least interpret your sighting as such. Maybe was that? No, I probably saw a bear or a moose or something else. There's always that thing, whenever you hear reports of somebody seeing alien, it's usually some less than brilliant guy in the backwoods of wherever who saw it. And that you're always questioning, how come a college professor didn't see it? Why is it always some backwoods rube who you immediately dismiss because they're missing teeth, they can barely talk and put together a coherent sentence, but they're the ones that get all these sightings. I could think there could be two reasons for that. One, one slightly serious and one comical. The first being that perhaps if these extraterrestrial beings are real, they're more likely to land in uninhabited spaces and places. Therefore, you know, the backwaters where maybe there's not too many college graduates. And the second would be that they're smart and they've traveled millions of miles to see us and they know that nobody's ever going to believe these guys. I've always been of the mindset that if any intelligent aliens are observing Earth, the last thing they want to do is make contact with humans because humans can be the worst. Make, make contact with all our animal species, they're fine, but humans, mm, no, I'm going home. Yeah, I mean, if they've watched us for more than five minutes, they would know that it's a possibly very dangerous encounter to have. It's a dangerous encounter because we're easily scared and very fearfully capable of harm or defense, in fact. And I, I think if I was a, an out-of-towner from Mars or wherever else, I'd be thinking, I would think twice about it. I would definitely think twice about that that encounter. And I, well, how do they do in South Park? They take the cows because they're the most intelligent beings on Earth. But if they're taking the cows and cows are notorious for farting, 
What does the inside of that spaceship smell like? Oh, gosh. Amazing. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Um. <laughs> How did you get the nickname? It's a great nickname. Sherlock Holmes of the Paranormal. Well, I, t- I tell you what, this was actually a promo for, I was, so I was pitching a series with Doug Hycheck, who created Monster Quest. And when I first, when we were first working together, I published my book through his son's publishing company, Hang On. And when I was first pitching one of my shows, he said, well, let's do this together. You know, let's see if we can get this off the ground. And it was called Beastly Theories, like the podcast. And we're supposed to go all over the world and check out these different unknown animal sightings with the researchers in their own locale. So see them, see their work. I've been the interviewer, almost take my skin in, in the game, out of the game, and just talk to them. Why are you here? Why are you doing this? Show me your stuff. So I said, write up a bio, but how do I write up a bio? Yeah, I can't say these things about myself. And he said, he's got a really raspy voice. You've been called the Sherlock Holmes of cryptozoology. I said, nobody's called me that. So I just called you in. And I said, okay, so I've been called it now. He said, exactly. And I put it in because, according to him, I had then been called it. And I still read it. And the British side of me gets a little awkward wince when I read it. And think, well, somebody's going to question that. People in the UK, being as they are, taking the, I was going to say the the, the wrong word, but taking the the mick with the fun out of people who think too much of themselves. That People have brought me up on it all the time, you know. Like, where's your hat and your, your deer stalker jacket? Magnifying glass. <laughs> when when you go to research a story, do you approach it as a skeptic or as a believer? I literally approach it, and I'm, I shouldn't probably say this out loud. When people contact me, I'm very grateful for their sighting. I'm to thank them for taking the time and for trusting me. And then I start talking to them about it conversationally because I want them to kind of count the sighting a couple of times in a non-forced way. But in the background, I basically I'm like Interpol. I'm looking this person up. I'm finding out who their friends are. I'm looking at them on Facebook. I'm looking at posts they've made. I'm looking at if they've reposted 22 different episodes of Sasquatch Chronicles or something like that. I'm looking for skin in the game and possibly, as does happen sometimes, some personal or perhaps even health reason that could predicate an over-imaginative scenario, something that they felt happened but didn't happen in real life. Even mental health conditions, which I've always said to people, does not exclude you from having a sighting if it's outside of the parameters of your of how you're affected. If this isn't part of your condition, you're not excluded. But if you are prone to having delusions and waking hallucinations, I do need to know about that before we proceed. And I will ask in the, the politest and the most compassionate way that I can. It doesn't happen often. Often I just get people, one, who really, really have seen something that they just can't explain. They're almost asking you to tell them that they're being silly, that they saw something else, that they made a mistake. Those are often very, very genuine. I look for small details, unimportant, mundane details that they can't forget every time they tell a story, but are not important to the story. Like if you walked down the street before you saw a Bigfoot and you noticed that one of the streetlights was out or Mrs. Jessup's garden gate was open but it doesn't impact the story at all, but you say it every time. It's sort of almost like a PTSD thing. It's solidified in your mind as part of the experience. And, and obviously people know that they can fake it, you, but you will, if you're making it up, you will slip up sooner or later. It'll disappear from the story. So that's one of the main main things I'm looking for. And of course, the deep, dark dive into Interpol that I do to find out who you really are. So in all, this, all these phenomena that you've researched, to what degree... Can most of them be explained by something 
pretty normal. And to what degree is there still a mystery and that there is no explanation for it? I think there is a whole host of monster imposters that you can substitute for nearly every sighting. So, for example, not here, but in the US, of course, Bigfoot sightings could be bears every single time. You're seeing a bear in low light in the woods, standing up, checking you out. You don't catch the snout of the ears, whatever happens. You could think that's a Bigfoot. Perhaps, perhaps. Nessie sightings, large eels, catfish, seals getting into the loch, even what was Jeremy Wade from River Monsters Theory, a Greenland shark, longest living animal in the world. They've got one at 500 years old, they found, but a harpoon still in it from the 17th century. If something like that had snuck in to the lock in its youth and stayed there, living on the bottom, deep, deep dwelling, yes, perhaps those things could, could answer that call. Other things are harder to explain. Don't really explain the Mothman sightings, to be honest with you. That doesn't really correspond with any animal that we know. Even an eagle or a stork or an eagle owl would be hard to transport into the seven-foot-tall, bipedal, red-eyed moth creature. It's a strange thing. So there's a lot of stuff like that. Dinosaur sightings, too, in places like the Congo or Australia, where they have something called the Boronjo, almost like a T-Rex-like animal living in the outback in Australia that Aborigines know about and allegedly people are still seeing to this very day. A huge 20-foot-long predator, dinosaurian predator, and people, very regular people, farmers, describe even seeing one pick up one of its cows or in its mouth and just walk off into the brush with it, disappear. I would love to see that. <laughs> and from afar, again, yes, from a again, distance. Yes, I yeah. don't want to be too close. I don't want it picking me yeah. up in its jaws yeah. and walking off. But no. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always wondered why... Science has always dismissed the thought that somewhere in the world there could be prehistoric creatures that are still alive and thriving. And that never made sense to me to discount that immediately. Yeah, but what we don't know all of the world, and even the fossil record, if you look, that's a, that's a product of correlation, essentially. We get one layer here, we get one layer there. We say that one is this old because it's got an, an indicator fossil in there, and, and that layer is that that. that Indicated fossil is this all because it's in this level. And it's something that the creationists actually regularly argue for is, is disproving evolution. They say, you, you know, you think this is, it's a mental abstract, this fossil record. It is a mental abstract, but maybe actually looking at the, the layers that have been put down over the years, it's quite a good mental abstract of what could have happened. However, every couple of years, we find something else that sort of throws it out. We find dinosaurs with feathers now. We find this indicator fossil higher up. We find coelacanth living just off of Madagascar and all these different things. I think there's a big fear in some of the communities that if dinosaurs were discovered, it sort of proves, disproves this materialist notion of the earth. I'm not sure if that's true because We've already found coelacanths. Crocodiles are still living. Horseshoe crabs are still here. Why couldn't, especially a, a sea-dwelling or a jungle-dwelling animal in the equator that never really would have frozen up at any point, why couldn't it have just lived on to the present day? In its same form, in the same way as crocodiles are, are still as they were all that, that time ago, according to that, that theory about the, the origins of life. I read an article that said that you believe that Bigfoot, the British Bigfoot, is extinct, but that Nessie is still alive and well. What led you to that conclusion? Well, I was for, so for the TV series Weird Britain, this summer we went to the biggest, we were the documentary team for the biggest expedition into Loch Ness in 50 years with my good friend Alan McKenna, 
for like my exploration who I've actually just got off an interview with before I came to you. And, and just an aside, Alan's supposed to be on the show in a few days, which... There you go. There you go. So we're, we're sort of, you know, sliding doors. So and, I'm going to be um, checking everything you say. Everything we will. <laughs> and Alan will back me up, even if I make something up. So we, we went up there to, to check check it out. Now, I've been referring, and you'll probably get this reference from you, I've been referring to Loch Ness for many, many years as a cryptozoological Coney Island. You know, like a knackered <laughs> old fairground, the paint's coming off the walls, and, you know, in, need, in desperate need of updating old, bedraggled, legend in this area hosting it. So what I found when I went up this time, and I haven't been there for about five years, was rejuvenation. All these great hotels, all these great boat tours going on, so many press, so many people ready for this expedition. We went there, we had a thermal drone, LIDAR, we had ROVs, everything, hydrophones, sonar, and we had a great time. And after the expedition finished, this Japanese lady called Chi Kelly who's married to Scott, lives in Scotland. She came out to Steve Felton, who's one of the, the Guinness Book of World Records holder for the longest vigil of Loch Ness, 32 years he's been there, watching the lot. I told him, look, I took these pictures in 2018, 71 pictures, and I've been afraid to show anybody because I'm a professional translator. And I, if I get ridiculed, this could be problematic for me. But this expedition has sort of given me hope that maybe it would be a good thing. She shows them to him. I've seen them. Probably the best pictures there's, there's been ever, as far as I could see. They're busy having them put into a continuous animation at the moment so we could really see what's going on there. And there were other people around. There were a few other sightings and footage we saw. And I just thought, you know what? I do think it's possible now. There's something about the, we can make genuosity a word for this moment, describe it. Something about the genuosity of the people there, of the sightings, of many, many individuals not having skin in the game, actually, locals coming forward who've kept things to themselves for years and said, look, I'll tell you, but you can't tell anybody else. And I don't want the sighting coming out. I'm just going to share my sight with you, but this is secret. I don't want anybody knowing I see it. I've seen it, or I don't want anybody knowing about the sighting. I'm just telling you I saw it three, four times, and that's it. So you know. And I think, well, this no, why tell me? It's not going anywhere. They're telling me so I'm the researcher, so I know. And I'm thinking, wow, that's something. Because you get a lot of negative attention when, and she, the lovely lady, the Japanese lady, the translator, she duly did get a lot of negative attention as soon as she shared it. Very, very heavy attention. You know, it's like people are calling you around the clock. They want to dig into your past and your life and see if you've got anything to, to make this story a bit more spicy. That's it. But I was convinced. Now, where's British Bigfoot? I've taken non-stop flack about for the last six or seven years since I started investigating of a piece of Britain by this book. And I never said I believed it. I just said there were some compelling witnesses. There's a history in the woodworks, which are these hairy man-like effigies which are carved on our churches, also in the stone, in the wood. They're on noble tapestries of Europe from the 11th and 12th, 12th century, high middle ages, basically. Everywhere, the woodworks, pre-Sasquatch, pre-Bigfoot, all of this stuff. And there they are all over the place on these these holy monuments, these holy places. I, I said, you know what, I actually think now, after looking at all of the evidence, which is scant evidence, over these six years, really, really deeply looking to the witness testimonies, many of which are second and, and third hand. And there's a lot of people here with skin in the game of propagating it, the legend that this species, if it did exist, was probably already extinct or nearly extinct when these effigies were made. It seems like this is almost memorializing a legend in itself. 
well, these things are first produced because they're almost seen as like totems, holy emblems, family emblems. Woodhouse, the name Woodhouse comes from Woodwoes. Did you know that? No. Yes, so that's, that's based upon that. Huh. And Woodwoes, Woodwoes are meaning sort of forest man or spirit of the forest. And it's, it's, it's very strange things. So it's deep, deep, deep in our history. But I do sadly think that it was gone even then because there's this big gap. And suddenly finding Bigfoot becomes big. Bigfoot is back after this whole thing, after the Yeti and whatever else had done, Patterson and Gimlin in the 50s and 60s. Suddenly Bigfoot is back. Bobo and Cliff, everybody's here. It's a lot of fun. And Bigfoot sightings start to pile up and pile up in Britain. And I, I just don't think that that they're genuine. But there are, there are so many stories of Bigfoot-like creatures around the world <laughs> in different cultures that that's what makes me believe there's got to be some truth to it. Absolutely. I do believe that it still exists in many places. I've looked into the Yeren in China, Yaoi in Australia, which have many, many compelling reports and footprints and evidence and other bits and pieces. Gosh, even in South America, there's, there's stories everywhere, not just North America, going all over the world in the Caucasus. There's the, what do you call it, the Baramado, which was in the Chitral mountain range near Pakistan and Afghanistan. There was a, a guy they called Jordi Magrina. He was a researcher. He was killed there, actually, by some of the locals over some, I think, they had a nefarious lifestyle, apparently, or some dispute, and he was murdered in 2002, I believe. And he investigated anyway all of these sightings, and he took them down into descriptions of what they saw. And they're all shepherds, these people, and they're very matter-of-fact stories. But this other kind of people, animal like people that live that don't wear clothes occasionally it with a loincloth or anything they can little bits of rag they can find they tire them themselves and they were very similar to stories recorded by marine jean kaufman marie jean kaufman who was french russian speaker uh died at 102 almost recently researcher for 70 something years in the cork in the, in the caucasus mountains and she picked up similar stories and similar descriptions from the natives found footprints and other things they would come and eat the eat the hemp in the summer or they would occupy empty barns in the winter to keep warm and all these different stories that thought this just seems too regular too mundane not flowery like a made-up story would be. I saw Bigfoot and it came at me and the rest of it, I let off my gun. It's always, oh yeah, they live here in the summer or you know, in the winter we see them and some of our clothes go missing from the line or some of our crops are stolen. They've, they've got a summer cabin. Yeah, the summer cabin up on the hill. They, uh... in, the, in the winter they go south to Miami. Exactly, exactly like everybody should. Yeah. <laughs> are you talking about good, great storytellers? I was listening to your podcast with, I forget the gentleman's name, who claims to have been abducted by aliens of, oh yes since yeah. childhood yes when when you are doing research when mm. you're talking to somebody like that how do you determine if they're being truthful or if they're just really good storytellers for the podcast my rule generally is it's not my right to believe it or disbelieve it i'm just there to hear their story because i find if i if i disbelieve them from the get-go sours the interview it's felt. And I'm, I've got a face that doesn't lie. I would be an awful spy. My face doesn't lie. And I would just find it very, very hard to, to not portray my disdain throughout the interview. So the whole point is I'm just here to listen to whatever you've got to say. And I've no opinion on it. I've just got to find a good question, as you know yourself, to ask you when you next take a breath 
Do you believe him, that that gentleman that was talking about that? I was impressed with the fact that there was no umming and eyeing. He was he had his story. Down. He's an author as well, though. He's written several books. So I would imagine, and many of them, I think, are about his experiences. He's also a podcaster, interviews a lot of people. Like I, I would already imagine that his story is smooth, that would flow because he's had to say it a lot of times. I'm very dubious about the whole alien thing and lots of the paranormal subjects in general because the level of confirmation bias is is difficult. Now, I'm, if he does listen to this, I'm not criticizing him in any way, but there's one story that comes up, he told about meeting an ET. Now, this ET looked like a Japanese lady, but counts, and he goes to a, a UFO sighting spot. She turns up and says, thank goodness you're here. I was supposed to meet you in broken English. And he says, okay, shall we sit in my car? She says, yes. And then somebody pulls up in a black SUV with a headpiece on. And he says, do you know this man? He says, and he's looking at them in the car. She says, no, I don't know him. She looks nervous. And he pulls away and comes back in two or three times. And then he says to her, are you an ET? And she doesn't answer him. And he thinks that makes her an ET. Then she has to be taken to her car. He takes her to the car. She drives off to the highway. He follows her. And then before he knows that she's speeding away and he can't keep up with her. Now, definitely an ET. But in my mind, I'm thinking somebody with broken English is being followed by a strange man in a black SUV. She comes, thank God you're here. I pray to God somebody would be here. You're here. You were meant to be here to help me. Come into my car. Sure, I'll come to your car. Great. Are you an ET? No, I'm not an ET. Who is this guy? What's going on here? I want to go back to my car. Fine, I'm back in my car. He's chasing me down the highway. I better floor it. And that's Andy's logical explanation for that. Whereas, uh, and I'm not doubting him, you know, because he was in the experience. He was going to have a whole different perspective. That's just a little snippet I took out of it. But he said, no, this lady was an ET. But I didn't see any bug eyes in the story. I didn't, she didn't do anything supernatural or extraterrestrial. She didn't zap him with some ray. She just kind of approached an old friendly looking guy for shelter and asked to be taken to a car when the creepy SUV guy was gone. Why do you think that all of the sightings of Bigfoot, Nessie, UFOs, Chupacabras, you name it, there's always a, there's a lack of physical and technological evidence? Are these creatures just that incredibly smart to be able to evade us? Uh, they're, uh, obviously, they're not on the internet, or we would know them from their Facebook page. But there never seems to be any definitive yeah. evidence. Yeah, I think with something like Nessie, that's an easy one, really. Somebody, a great researcher, Ronald Watson, st did a statistical analysis of the sightings, and the average sighting length was eight seconds. Okay, so if something breaches the water for eight seconds, even this day of having your cameras and everything at the ready, you're probably not going to capture it in that eight seconds before you realize, oh, there's something, and then you get your phone out, unless your phone is pointing in that direction. So that's hard to have a sea-bound, water-bound monster that's more difficult to detect. With Bigfoot, I think, you know, this game camps askew all over the place. There's either one or two things. Either these creatures are much, much more rare than we than the cult of Bigfoot and the mercantile conferences or around the place where everybody's got their own footprint cast from their own area would tell us they're actually very, very, very rare creatures, rarely seen. Or in the same way as if you walk into your house and somebody's been to your bookshelf and taken one book out, put it in another place, you may not notice it, but you feel that something is off. Maybe that's the same with the game cam. It's your wood, every tree, every branch. You know where you are. You know when something seems off. I've seen it with deer with game cams, actually. They kind of, what's that thing over there? And I think, well, this is my camouflage game cam. Why is she approaching the game cam? Before I know it, this doe is sniffing around the cam. So perhaps, but it still doesn't, still not very plausible. Even with a paddy film, 
I've seen the breakdown of it. I've listened to Bob Gimlin, the, the surviving member, talk. But it's just, and this is perhaps a British view of American American interests as well. There's something too mercantile about the whole genre for us to accept the people involved in it are being genuine because there's they've got they've got an iron fire. They've got something to sell at the same time. Whereas in the United States, I find that's perfectly acceptable to be pushing an agenda, but also have something to make from it. Here, it's like, well, if you're selling something based upon this information, it must be because you're lying, because your money depends on it. I can no longer trust what you say. I've noticed that that's a big difference. I'm not saying it's dishonest, but it's just a dividing line for us. I want you to put your prognosticator hat on. That was yes. tough for me to say. Your prognosticator hat. Of all the mysterious creatures and beings purported to be on Earth, which do you think will be revealed to us soon as real? I think if any of the late monsters are real, I think we'll find them most likely. Maybe not in Loch Ness because it's a very murky body of water unless the thing plops out of the beach in the middle of the day. I don't think we're going to find it. But maybe in one of the other lochs. Maybe in Lake Champlain, someplace like that, perhaps if there is something there. In in terms of land-based animals, I think the Orang Pendic is the most likely species to be discovered. It's a sort of four and a half feet tall ape like creature, it's upright. It resembles a macaque in many ways, I suppose, or a gibbon. And the sightings that have been made of it, the scientific research around it is very, it's via real scientists. Oh, look at this. People like Professor Cheevers, even the find a Bigfoot team like Cliff and Dr. Meldrum. They're good researchers. Real people are looking for it and they've got some, some great evidence. So I think that's a, it's a high possibility that it might be real and might be discovered in the next few years. You don't think UFOs will be? No, and I saw a great meme recently. It was uh, it was the old X-Files poster. I, I want to believe, only it said, I used to believe, but then the US government told me they were real. Of all the paranormal phenomena and mythical creatures that you've investigated over the years, that there may not be any evidence of, which would you most like to be real? I'd like to have a Nessie encounter. Clearly, it was my first love when I was at the lock recently, twice. This, this year, putting my ROV into the depths of the water, flying the thermal drone over looking for, for any sign of life and just sitting on the water in the calm. I kept saying, come on, it's Andy. You know, it's Andy. You've got to, you've got to come. I won't tell anybody I saw you. I'll keep it to myself, even as a researcher. I had my honeymoon at the Loch Ness Lodge in 2012. Two years after we married, we were too poor to afford a honeymoon when we got married. And we went to this five star luxury spa lodge alongside the loch next to the Klansman for anybody that's interested. still a great place. And in the breakfast, the dining table, it was so painfully awkward because they were all very whispery and treating everybody very, very well and not getting in their way. We just wanted to be loud and talk. And my wife's in the Middle East. She was just being loud. I'm from Celtic country. I was being loud. And we were looking at that breakfast window all the time. So it was right there. You could see the lock the whole time. And two years later in 2014, there was a nine people sighted a big upturned boat-shaped hump surface just outside the breakfast window, swim around in the circle, and then drop below the surface of the water. And I have never been so gutted. I grew up on all these monster movies where all these giant prehistoric-like creatures, in, in the British film Gorgo, the giant behemoth, Godzilla, you name it. When I was five and first saw the original King Kong on TV, I cried my eyes out at the oh, end. Oh, yeah. So sad when he yeah, dies. I said, yeah. he didn't want to go to New York. Why'd they have to drag him there? He was fine <laughs> on his island. And, and the same thing with all these monsters. I think for some reason, 
they would understand that I'm a friend and be very nice to me. Yeah. I would like to believe and that. Would. I'm and, sure they would. And then, of course, I'd probably be I eating. think animals can feel our intention. If they're not afraid and they're not hungry, I think very often they, they might they might leave us be. Would you feel the same way about a T-Rex? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'd be trying to remember all of the pointers from Jurassic Park about not moving or throwing flares or running towards a wicker basket toilet shack. So is that is that Australian creature, has it ever been known to attack anybody? Not that they know of, but it, they think it's a scavenger and then occasionally feeds on cattle. I mean, I'd imagine an animal like that would probably have a pretty slow metabolism if it is a reptile. But yeah, I mean, just short, the, the small front paws and everything. Yet just picking up creatures. It does exist in Aboriginal legend, but actually as a sort of a trickster spirit, not as this dinosaur-like creature. So that's a strange thing. And it is also associated with the now departed researcher Rex Gilroy, who was a very early Australian cryptozoologist, but also quite tainted in certain quarters for possible hoaxing and faxing and having too many sightings under his belt. Sometimes you see that. I see that here at British Bigfoot. Somebody who's got 500 witness reports and you've only ever received two in your life or three in your life, you think, well, there's something going on here. I thought you were going to finish by saying he was eaten by a T-Rex. A fitting ending for somebody like that. No, he died. I think he was very old. Died recently, actually. Uh, I, I love his work. I love his books. And there's a good friend of mine there, Gary Opin, who's not only a zoologist, but an expert on fauna and flora, has a great radio show where actually if you heard the call of an animal, if you, you've, you've recorded it, you call in, play it to him, and he will identify the animal for you every time. He's also a cryptozoologist and writes very in a very scientific way about the whole thing. His research is it's wonderful, but still, I'm not sure. I think the jury's still out on the burn show. I'm not sure. Okay, this is the part of the show where you get to pitch everything you have to pitch. Your books, your podcasts, uh, your TV okay. shows. Go uh, for it. Okay, so I have two books presently. The first is Beasts of Britain, and that's about all the strange, unusual, and unknown creatures in Britain. British Bigfoot, Nessie, werewolves, trolls, flying pterosaurs, all kinds of things. Black dogs as well. And I also have a second book called Harry Humanoids, and that's under the Beasts of the World series. It's the first volume available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and wherever you, you get your books, a paperback, audiobook, and Kindle. I also host a podcast, a so-called podcast, as I explained to to um to you, Steve. And that's called Beastly Theories, and that's talking about all the weird, wonderful ideas, theories, and experiences that people have, or just what they're into. If you love aliens and you want to marry one, or you think you've seen Nessie, you come and you talk to me, and I will listen to you with a straight face and give you respect and, and my time. And I am a lot nicer to them in person. And I do, I do respect each other. I do really respect them. It's a wonderful world to be involved in. You do have to stay objective and not make a judgment. I don't make any opinion or judgment on that. Come tell me your stories and I'll, um, I'll give you my time. And the TV show is, is called what again? Weird Britain. It's called Weird Britain. Now that's Weird about Britain. a whole host of things. We've got ghost encounters. We've got witches. We've got King Arthur, the biggest expedition for Nessie in 50 years. There's uh, crop circles we found freshly made with people going and, and worshipping and walking out allegedly younger from them. And amazing things, just really, really unusual things. Stonehenge, I get to sing with the Druids at Avebury Stone Circle, one of their big meetings before Halloween. And it's just a, it's a lovely party and, and it's gentle. 
it's not it's not comical it's not making fun it's just a nice gentle look at all of these wonderful things we have here in the uk why people believe in them as a senior citizen i would like to know where that crop circle is that you walk out younger oh yeah <laughs> spoiler alert although people did claim to have been rejuvenated in this circle it, it didn't appear to be working oh darn yeah okay yeah. well i'll just have to go the way i'm going yeah, yeah, keep going with it. You're doing well. Andy, is there any question you'd like to answer that I haven't asked? I think there is one. And that is, you know, when you get into cryptozoology and the paranormal and whatever else you want to investigate, any unknown or interesting phenomena, castles and keeps or weird doors and old buildings around the world, whatever the thing is, just do it because you love it. Don't worry about what anybody thinks about what you're doing. Just get into it. Enjoy it. And don't spend the whole time fighting people about different opinions. You know, if somebody tells you two plus two equals five, just say, yep, you're right. And have a nice life. I thank you so much for being here. And I hope we can do it again. And me too. My thanks to Andy McGrath for being on Life Slices. As Andy says, if you think you've seen something that doesn't seem to mesh with proven science, don't simply accept conventional thought. Believe in yourself and explore what that sighting may mean. Now, excuse me, I think my dog is barking at Bigfoot. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios.